we're going to come now to the Word of God. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible with you. Um, for those of you who don't normally attend Sunday nights, we're in a second uh, message of an evening teaching series, looking at the world's greatest sermon, uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, at the opening verses, commonly called the Beatitudes. Uh, this is an awesome mountainside sermon by the world's greatest preacher, Jesus himself. It reminds me of a story. After a church service, a little boy said to the pastor, Pastor, when I grow up and I get a job, I'm going to give you some money. And the pastor was a little bit puzzled and he said, well, thank you, but, but why would you want to do that? To which the little boy said, in a matter of fact sort of way, well, he said, because every Sunday after church, my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. Well, this particular beatitude, the first one, we talked last week about being blessed. Uh, the, 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 the list of beatitudes starts with blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, and so on. We'll read them in a moment, and we, we, we looked at that. But the first beatitude really says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let me read you that portion of scripture in chapter 5, just the first 12 verses. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Now although there was a crowd around them, Jesus was focusing in here on this teaching uh, with, with his disciples, with his chosen uh, uh, twelve. And, and so this is really for, for God's people. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we know God will add a blessing to the public reading of his word. But you know, as we look at this first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I can't help but wonder if those listening, his disciples, uh, who are listening to this whole sermon, if they wish they had a dictionary with them. Um, because it must have seemed like Jesus was speaking in a sort of different language, uh, if not a contradictory sort of language. What is all this about? What does this mean? Now, I don't know about you, but I've always enjoyed reading oxymorons. You know what an oxymoron is? Uh, it's a combination of contradictory words or phrases that we use and it doesn't seem like they should go together, you know, like uh, clearly misunderstood. Uh, exact estimate. Um, a small crowd. That's an oxymoron, right? Uh, act naturally is another one. Um, found missing, we sometimes say. And there's, there's many, many more like uh, pretty ugly. Um, uh, deafening silence, or maybe even a short sermon. That's kind of an oxymoron in some places, maybe here too. 
But while these separate words themselves aren't difficult to understand, it's when you put them together that you have to try and get beyond the apparent contradiction. And it's the same with these words of Jesus. His message in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular in the Beatitudes, is kind of counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what you might naturally think about. And perhaps we can best understand them by not regarding them as just odd statements. They're actually congratulatory exclamations. Um, all eight characteristics that we should display in our lives are introduced with the word blessed or blessed because Jesus wants us to seek the applause of heaven as Max Lucado talks about it in relation to these uh, Beatitudes, the applause of heaven. To be blessed means to be approved of God. In other words, God wants to give his approval to those who put him first. Last week, if you were here, we established that if we're serious about being a committed Christian, a disciple, we should strive to follow the example of the disciples by loving Jesus, learning from him, and, and then living out, being what he teaches us to be. Because the Beatitudes are the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. I heard of a family that went to Rossmore National Park for the, for the day to enjoy the great outdoors. I'm sure many of you have been there and, and they like to get out and about and do things. And when they arrived at the front entrance to the park, they saw a sign that said, no trespassing, no fishing, no camping, no picnicking, no hunting and no hiking. And at the bottom of the sign in small print, it also said, this is your national park. Enjoy it. Uh, yet it was predicated with all these don't do's. Well, in this teaching, Jesus isn't giving us a list of don't do or don'ts, but a list of do's, of encouragements, of how we should be in our attitudes and, and in our actions. You see, belief must always lead, and always does, lead to behavior. And you know, only believers, really, Christians can live out these beatitudes. They're a package deal. We can't pick and choose the ones that we like. And last week, we saw how Jesus applied the concept of Holy happiness or invulnerable joy. The Greek word for blessed was makarios. And he used it nine times out of 12 verses here. And he applied it to things that we've, we would never even consider applying it to in our way of thinking. For the majority of people, Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, the popular idea of finding happiness or joy is usually based on having the right circumstances, isn't it? What I sometimes call the, the when and then thinking. Uh, for example, you know, when I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I find the right person, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. Right, Lorraine? Yes. When the kids leave home, then I'll be happy. The when and then thinking. Because we think outward circumstances bring the contentment. And here Jesus is telling us the exact opposite. He's saying that Happiness doesn't come from without, but from within. The key to this genuine happiness or this makarios is not based on external things. It's an inward happiness, which is neither the result of circumstances nor subject to change on the basis of circumstances. And Jesus is saying we can have this happiness and this, this joy whose roots extend deep into the bedrock of eternity by trusting in him alone. This type of joy is a sacred delight and it's a, it's a delight because it has the potential to satisfy us, to fill us, to thrill us and it's sacred because it's God's joy. 
I mean, just think about it. What could ever cloud or quench God's joy? Does God ever have a bad day? Does God ever refuse to rotate the earth because his feelings are hurt? No. He, his is a joy and a happiness which circumstances can't steal or take away. And notice that as the master teacher that he is, Jesus didn't just start anywhere in his explanation of, of God's expectations. The Beatitudes are progressive. And it's not random that Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in many uh, minds of people, even today, that verse, verse 3, they, they, they think should probably read, Blessed are the movers and the shakers. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the famous, the powerful, the self-confident, because they can have anything they want. But God, in God's wisdom, it's the very opposite of the conduct in our culture. And in order to help us kind of savor the flavor of what he's trying to say in this first beatitude, you know, different translations translate it in different ways. The, the NIV, the, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, all render it the same way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The New English Bible says, how blessed are those who know they are poor, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The Living Bible paraphrase reads, Humble men are very fortunate, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. And the New Living Translation puts it this way, God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. But perhaps it's the message paraphrase that captures the meaning best when it says, uh, in, in its paraphrase of this verse, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. In some ways, it's a mysterious way to begin the Beatitudes because uh, we aren't immediately certain what Jesus means. The words themselves are not difficult, of course. We know what the word poor generally means. And we know what spirit generally means. But why is poor in spirit something God wants us to be? In fact, why would God want us to be poor in anything? Now, one of the best ways to understand what it means, I think, is to, uh, first of all, look at what it doesn't mean. First of all, it doesn't refer to material or economic poverty. That's sort of poor. Very poor people would call their poverty a blessing from God. And as proof, of course, of that, most of us work hard to stay out of poverty. Jesus is not talking about those who are destitute of money or possessions. Notice it doesn't read, blessed in spirit are those who are poor. Jesus nowhere in scripture condemns having possessions. He only warns about possessions having hold of us. And so this has nothing to do with possessions. And secondly, it doesn't refer to, you know, uh, poor in spirit. It doesn't refer to shyness or false modesty or humility uh, an inferiority complex or the suppression of our natural personality. Sometimes people can use these things as a way to actually elevate themselves. And there's such a thing as false humility, which is really just a form of self-pity uh, for people as a way to draw attention to themselves. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor spirited. He's not saying that happiness comes when you put yourself down. Oh, I'm no good I'm junk, I'm a loser. Listen, Jesus didn't die for junk. He went to the cross because you are that important to him. And you and I have value and significance to him. And that's why at the beginning of the service, we read that he lavished 
his love upon us. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect, of course. We've all sinned. But Jesus is not telling us here to go around putting ourselves down all the time. That's not what he means. To be poor in spirit simply means to be totally dependent on God. Just like little Seth is totally dependent on his parents and and on his family. It means realizing really our spiritual deficiencies. And while we're not worthless, neither are we worthy without God either. It means admitting that I'm a sinner. It means more than just using the the phrase, nobody's perfect, as a cliche, but realizing that it was my sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. Therefore, being poor in spirit means emptying ourselves of our selfishness. In a word, it's humility, which is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Did you get that? That's what humility is. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so it is that Jesus stresses this first quality to possess in order to find true happiness, the applause of God, the blessedness of God. It's to recognize that we're not good. To understand and acknowledge that we're destitute spiritually, that we're poor in spirit. And that's counterintuitive because we've been taught to hide behind our masks, to put on a good front, to to puff up with importance. But Jesus says, no, you must first understand You're not good, because if you don't, you'll never recognize your need. And none of us, none of us here tonight, doesn't matter who you are, what you do for a living, what you did at school or university, none of us can boast about our own goodness or cause our creator to be in awe about us. Listen, you don't impress the officials at NASA, the North American Space Agency, with a little paper airplane. Look at me, I've made a little paper airplane. NASA would laugh at you. You wouldn't boast about your crayon drawings in the presence of Picasso. You wouldn't claim equality with Einstein simply because you can understand what H2O means. We can't impress God by who we are or what we are, no matter how much status or success we may think we have achieved. So you've done some great things, have you? God says... Really? Done great things? Really? Remember what he said to Job? He said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Did you mark off its dimensions? Did you shut up the sea behind doors? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Folks, we need God. And that requires a shift in our thinking because we don't like declaring our impotence. We have a hard time understanding how confession of failure is admission really into joy, the joy of his presence. And yet the irony of God's delight in us is that real joy is born in the the parched soil of admitted failure rather than the fertile ground of, of, of what we think is an achievement. We figure accomplishment, not admission of need, is the way to happiness. But God has never figured things the way we do. And it's only when we become poor in spirit, when we become humble before a holy God, that we can then be surprised by his invulnerable joy that that he gives and that no one can take away. You know, in the Old Testament, there's several words that are translated poor, but they all refer to those who recognize their need and as a result are desperate for God. Psalm 40 and verse 17, Yet I am poor and needy, 
May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay, the psalmist says. In Psalm 69, verse 32, the poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the prayers of the needy. There are two primary words for poor in the New Testament. One refers to having just enough to get by. Like the widow who put her last two coins. You remember that story? Uh, the widow's mite in the offering plate. While the other word means having nothing whatsoever. And it was used in Luke chapter 16. You know the story well where Jesus told the story of Lazarus. The beggar who sat at the gate of the rich man. The Bible tells us that the dogs came and licked his sores. And he ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. In other words he was absolutely, totally Completely impoverished. One means you have just enough to get by. And the other means you have nothing whatsoever. It's the difference between down, being down to your last few euros. And being absolutely flat broke. And it describes a person who is absolutely helpless. And completely dependent on others. In its verb form poor means to crouch down. It means to beg. A person who is poor in spirit, therefore, is someone who is undeniably spiritually destitute and dependent on someone other than themselves. And, of course, that someone is God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. To be spiritually poor in spirit means to recognize our true condition before a holy God. It means we recognize our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy in the eyes of a holy God. As someone has said, we may be well-educated, but of ourselves we're spiritually ignorant. We may be financially secure, but of ourselves we're spiritually bankrupt. And here's the startling truth. God wants these sort of folks, rejects you might say, to be part of his family. He wants rejects to see their failure and to run to him for help. And, and to the spiritually bankrupt, Jesus opens the door of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, come on in, come on in. This place was made for you and that explains why this is the first beatitude because in teaching this simple truth Jesus has shown us the way of salvation blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall be saved but cursed are the proud for they shall be condemned and you know that's the first and the fundamental quality of the spiritual life uh, and where our discipleship has to begin realizing that we have to come to him humbly with nothing that we can offer to him except the very sins that we need to be saved from. It's the first beatitude. As I say, we have to come, uh, become humble in order to have any chance of living out the other beatitudes because the foundation of all the other graces of God are laid in humility. Too many people running around these days, too many Christians even. You see them even on television and it's as if they're saying, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Each time I look in the mirror, I get better looking every day. There's no humility about them. It's only those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy who can be fully satisfied in Christ. We have to be humble in order to have God's approval because when there's less of us, we can experience more of him. Isn't that what John the Baptist said? I must decrease and he must increase. We'll only be filled when we own our own emptiness we can't be made worthy until we recognize our own unworthiness and that's the key that will unlock heaven i love the i love the words of 
Augustus, top lady, hymn writer, he expressed this truth when he wrote in his hymn, Rock of Ages. We're going to sing it at the end in a few moments. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, fly to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Some of us are missing out on God's blessing and his applause because we have yet to be humbled. And you know, there's two arenas in which we need to become spiritual beggars that God can bless and use. And the first arena is that of our individual arrogance and pride. In Luke 18, there's a vivid illustration of what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus tells a parable uh, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, it says, and looked down on everybody else. The message paraphrase reads this way. He told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their nose at the common people. And Jesus explains how two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a publican, a tax collector. The self-righteous Pharisee, feeling good about himself, prayed, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like other people who, who pray to you. I don't commit adultery. I don't murder people. I don't break the law. I fast twice a week. I, I give a tithe of all I have. Lord, you're lucky to have me on your side. In fact, in verse 11, it says he prayed about himself. And his first statement was filled with pride. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then in verse 12, he boasts about how much he has done for God. But the publican, on the other hand, demonstrate what it means to be poor in spirit. He wouldn't even look up. And he beat his chest and he cried, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the message puts it this way. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. See, both men prayed, but only one was heard. Was it the religious Pharisee? No. Because he wasn't praying. You know what he was doing? He was giving God his resume, his CV. Jesus said that God heard the other man's prayer because his words came from a broken heart. One man was rich with pride. The other was poor in spirit. One man thought highly of himself while the other felt his own shortcomings. One man impressed with his own accomplishments. The other was distressed by his own sin. One man boasted the other man begged. One man recommended himself to God and the other man pleaded for God's mercy. One prayed out of his spiritual poverty while the other bragged about the things that he was and that he did. And it says the tax collector went home justified before God. And Eugene Peterson in the Living Bible paraphrase adds, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you'll become more than yourself. One man was saved and the other man was lost. Only it wasn't the good man who was saved. He ended up lost and the bad man, as it were, ended up saved. And that simple truth explains the end of the first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit because they know that they don't deserve it. And yet God gives it to them as a gift. 
I want you to know tonight that maybe more times than I care to confess, I'm more like the self-righteous Pharisee than I am the broken and tender tax collector. I've had to confess my arrogant pride more than once because as Charles Spurgeon once said, our, listen, our imaginary goodness is more hard to conquer than our actual sin. Oh, think about that. Our imaginary goodness is more hard to conquer than our actual sin. And I fall into the thinking that I can do things on my own and I don't need God at times when the truth is really I can't do anything without God. Our own individual pride and arrogance. But then the second area in which we need to come as spiritual beggars is in our collective conceit. Well, we must start by admitting our own arrogant pride individually. You know, as your pastor here, I trust that as a congregation, we can confess to some collective pride from time to time. As much as we're all aware of the birth of Elam right here in Monaghan Town, and you have witnessed God do some amazing things in your midst down through the years, hundred years and more, we must be ever vigilant regarding church conceit. God has gathered us together through the years as gifted people, yes. And we've experienced some extraordinary blessings, yes. But we need to remind ourselves that we are and we always will be totally dependent on God for everything. 1 Corinthians 4 and 7 in the New Living Translation reminds us that everything we have is a gift from God. It says, what do you do that, that God hasn't given you? Or what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why boast as though you have accomplished something on your own? Remember, when Jesus addressed the churches in the book of Revelation, he had some pretty strong words for one church that had become conceited, become arrogant. They had experienced many blessings and wonderful resources. And it seemed like they could just keep on rolling like they always had. But they'd become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They were no longer on fire. They, were, they weren't quite iced over yet, but they were right in the middle where things were comfortable and safe. And yet Jesus said in some of the strongest words of his ever recorded that he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. An image that denotes deep disgust. Conceited Christians make Jesus sick. That's the short version of it. They had become half-hearted because they felt like they didn't need anything anymore. And yet, uh, you know, Jesus said to them, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. Instead of being poor in spirit, they were full of themselves, boasting about what they had, uh, what they had and what they had done. But Jesus put his finger on the pulse of their congregational heartbeat. And he said, but you don't realize that you're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. That was the true state of their spiritual portfolio. And so if we're serious about living out this first beatitude, we must admit individual arrogance at times when we step over the mark and confess our, conceited, our collective conceit when God calls it out. We must file, if you like, for spiritual bankruptcy because it's only as we admit our desperation that we will see our need for God. In order to inherit God's kingdom, we have to give up our kingdom. 
because we'll remain wrapped up in ourselves and deceived by our own ego and proud accomplishments until we see ourselves as, you know, until we see ourselves crouching in the corner, begging for God's grace and undeserving of his mercy. You know, Pastor Ken Blanchard once said that ego, that pride within us, the ego, E-G-O, stands for edging God out. And Ezekiel 28 and 2 reveals that for some of us, our problem is that we, we think we're God. It says there, in, in, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God. But you're a man and not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. So the quickest way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Because while we're in the presence of the one who alone is perfect, how can we boast about how good we are? We must see our own poverty against his plenty. But also understanding that God loves to bring us to the end of ourselves, to expose our deficiency so we can see his all-sufficiency. And then this beatitude ends or comes with two promises. First of all, we'll be blessed. We'll be approved by God when we become humble, poor in spirit. God's waiting to applaud those who admit their emptiness And second, the kingdom of heaven is ours. Notice that both the first and the last beatitude, if you look at the last beatitude, they're in the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we declare spiritual bankruptcy, that there is no good thing in us, and depend on the provision of God's Son, he gives heaven to us as a gift. But this phrase, kingdom of heaven, in this context, isn't just referring to Uh, That place where those of us who believe and trust in God will live forever in the future. We sang about that this morning. It also refers to the environment where Christ rules uh, here and now. So what kind of life will the poor in spirit have if Jesus rules over us rather than us trying to rule ourselves? Well, let me conclude with just three things that you'll experience when you humble yourself and, and stay humble before God. It will be a life that experiences God's grace. Several times the Bible repeats the proverb, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And if you're poor in spirit, you will admit your need for him. And that's when he gives his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace when really all we deserve is punishment. And secondly, not only will we live a life that experiences God's grace, but not only does this life bring God's grace, being humble, admitting our need also reduces stress. Did you know that? In other words, when I'm humble, I don't have all the answers. And I realize that the world doesn't depend on me. And I can resign as general manager of the world and the universe. When I'm humble, I can admit that I don't have it all together. I don't have to fake it anymore. I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect because God doesn't demand it in order for me to be blessed. And things don't have to be perfect for me to be joyful because humility accepts the fact that you are happy because you're depending on God, not depending on everything to be ideal. That's how Paul could say in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of being happy At any time and in all things that happen, I can do all things through Christ because he gives me strength. 
I'm not depending on things or others for my approval, but on Jesus Christ alone, the approval of heaven, the applause of heaven. So when I become poor in spirit and walk in dependence on the Lord, it reduces the stress in my life. And when the stress goes down, happiness and contentment comes in. Lastly, being poor in spirit will improve our relationships with others. How many of you, let me ask you, how many of you enjoy being around arrogant, prideful, boastful people? Who's thinking right now, oh, I can't wait next week to go out to lunch or have coffee with a conceited jerk? None of you. No one likes a selfish person. When you're poor in spirit, you take an interest in others. And when you take an interest in others, you become interesting to others. Being poor in spirit means that you ask forgiveness of others, and in turn, you're forgiving. It improves relationships. How do we embrace this attitude, this be attitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we become poor in spirit? Well, I believe the first thing we need to do is to regularly, daily, ask God to to help us see our sin as sin. Not rationalizing it, not excusing it. Our sinful state sometimes blinds us to such an extent that if left to ourselves, we'll gradually begin to justify our sin. But we need to daily ask God to shine the light of his holiness on our attitudes and on our actions. We need to pray as David did in Psalm 90 and say, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults, Lord. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. And secondly, we must stop comparing ourselves to others. You see, it's never possible to create a true poverty of spirit by looking within or by looking around at other people. The human heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above everything else. It's corrupt. And because of it, we'll always latch on someone who is worse in some respect than we are. And we'll find someone who is prouder than we are. And although we may still be quite proud, we'll congratulate ourselves on being humble in relation to them. Or we'll find someone who has a a bad temper. And although we have a bad temper, we'll congratulate ourselves on being more moderate than they are. So don't look around. Don't look around at other people. Look to God. Constantly compare yourself to God. Because in the presence of the one who is perfect, how can we boast about how good we are in any way? And finally, we must discipline ourselves to depend on God for everything, every day. Jesus said in John 5 and 5, without me, you can do nothing. And so the prayer we must pray most often is, God help me. Lord help me. We need to prostrate ourselves before God daily and make that prayer. I read about three pastors who were out having coffee and were discussing the proper way to pray. And One said the best way to pray was with hands together and fingers up. Another one said the best way to pray was on his knees. And the third said the best way to pray is to lie prostrate on the floor. And there was an electrician in the back of the coffee shop and he overheard their conversation and he added you know the best posture for me to pray was when I was hanging upside down with a live wire wrapped around my legs Christian had it right didn't he we're doomed without God we're all even tonight even young Seth we're 
all just one heartbeat away from eternity without God. And we need to acknowledge that. And the message of this beatitude is that we can't save ourselves. Not through the right rituals. Not through the right devotions. Not through the right goosebumps you get. Not, nothing that we can do helps to save us. In this first statement, Jesus was saying, Blessed is the man or the woman who knows this. Blessed is the man or the woman who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the individual who has realized their own helplessness before Almighty God. Being poor in spirit is the realization of a sense of powerlessness, a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God, a sense of moral uncleanness and personal unworthiness before our holy God. A sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of his grace. And everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless and is bankrupt spiritually and helpless and unclean and unworthy. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means, he doesn't mean everybody. Did you know that? He means those who sense it, those who realize it, and those who admit it. You can't even become a Christian unless you're poor in spirit and humble yourself before God. It's foundational to living out the other Beatitudes. And so as the worship team come back to help us with our closing song, those who really want to experience God's presence in their lives will have declared spiritual bankruptcy. Their cupboards are bare, so to speak. Their pockets are empty. Their options have gone. They've long since stopped demanding justice and fairness. They're pleading for mercy. They don't brag unless it's bragging about God. And blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless. Let's pray together.